Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Endourological Society podcast. Uh, we are going to talk about different situations uh, for stone disease, whether it be ureteroscopic or percutaneous. I leave it up to our guests, but we are always talking about the simple laser ureteroscopies and percutaneous surgeries for index patients. I thought we would try to bring our guests in to talk about some of the more difficult or challenging situations that might arise in our complex patients with stones. Uh, we are honored today to have two experts in the field from Arizona. We have Karen Stern, who is Associate Professor of Urology at the Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And we have Dr. Cesare Scafone, who is the Director of the Urological Department of Cotolengo Hospital in Torino, Italy. Karen and Cesare, thank you very much. Welcome to the program, and uh, we appreciate your contributions today. The first thing I want to talk about is calicial diverticula. They can be a little challenging uh, based on their location. They can be asymptomatic. They can be incidentally found. They can be, they can present with pretty significant infection, uh, even some systemic uh, bacteremia and illnesses uh, and such. Uh, I guess my first question, Karen, is how do you approach them typically if if they are symptomatic and and deem necessary to treat? What is your preferred approach? And maybe just kind of talk us through how you might approach them, what your workup is, and, and then how you might deal with them. Sure. So if they're truly symptomatic and you have to treat them, if possible, I'll try to get a CT urogram to get a little bit better idea of the anatomy, how big the diverticular mouth may be, um, where exactly in the kidney I can find it. I think that gives me a little bit more information going into the case. And then I always try first retrograde to see if I can find the opening and open it up. I find the TFL is really hemostatic on tissue. And so, you know, you used to have issues where you open it or you try to, and then you get bleeding and you can't see, and it becomes a little bit more difficult. I don't really find that's the situation anymore. And so if we can find it at all and open it up, I, if I can do it retrograde, that's how I prefer to do it. Okay. And uh, you mentioned the thulium fiber laser. So that has made a significant difference. You, can you share with the audience some of your settings that you might use initially just to get into the diverticulum? Yeah, so I use more of a dusting setting. So 0.2 and 100 is sort of my go-to. You get very minimal charring, really no bleeding. I find it opens up the tissue really well, and it's pretty easy to control. Okay. And Cesare, when you encounter a diverticulum, do you prefer to try retrograde, or will you go right to the percutaneous route? Uh, normally, I, uh, I think that is uh, really important to evaluate the CT scan before. And uh, as uh, as Karen told before, uh, I treat the diverticulum only if it is uh, really symptomatic. And uh, it's uh, really important to evaluate the anatomy, especially uh, evaluating the, the posterior or the anterior uh, diverticulum. And in any case, uh, I am doing uh, flexible ureteroscopy before uh, starting to, uh, to do the treatment. Uh, we are using, uh, if uh, we are not sure to do this uh, uh, only regularly, we are using copy combined intrarenal surgery. So we put the 
the patient normally in the position uh, of the Galdaco modified uh, Valdivia position, okay. supine. And in this case, we evaluate retrograly, and if it's possible to identify the, the orifice of the diverticulum, we can start the incision with the laser. I am using also the tulium fiber or the volume laser. And if it's not possible, we are doing the same time the puncture of the diverticulum and the, the the percutaneous approach of the diverticulum. It's very important also to know also the burden of the stone inside in the diverticulum because if we have we have a big stone normally we have multiple stones and sometimes it's not so easy to uh, to treat these only retrograde so i think that we uh, we are ready to do the the combined approach to give to the patient only one uh, one treatment okay and Karen, if you're unable to do uh, the retrograde approach, are, do you bring them back for a second uh, case or are you prepared to do percutaneous at the same setting? Kind of depends on the stone burden. So, and you know, and how symptomatic they are. Like Cesar said, if it's a large stone burden, I'll be prepared to perk. And so I'll position them and have the ultrasound there uh, and try to get access into it. Okay. If I can add one uh, one uh, one thing is uh, that uh, is uh, is also very important uh, to understand uh, how to incise the diverticulum. So I think that uh, depending on the position of the orifice, uh, using the laser sometimes is uh, also sometimes is uh, a little bit dangerous for for, uh, for uh, the patient. I think that in the in the percutaneous approach uh, you can uh, do this. Uh, easier i think that with a, a better vision and uh, without any any feeling uh, if uh, perhaps uh, you can incise a small artery you can also coagulate this is the thing that uh, also if you want to to cut the the orifice of the diverticulum and so i guess that kind of leads into the next question do you almost always destruct the diverticulum with thermal cauter, uh, you know, cauterization of some kind. And if you do, if you have a large diverticulum, maybe talk to the audience about how you approach that with a 200 uh, micron laser fiber and you have to destroy a fairly large surface area. And also if you're taking the stone, uh, if you're dusting a stone, I guess it's probably not that difficult to uh, get all the fragments out. You can just irrigate them out and you, you open up a wide mouth, but uh, if you destroy it and you leave some fragments in that area and it uh, collapses down and such, maybe just, uh, Karen, just talk to that since you're a, a strong proponent of retrograde. How do you go ahead and destroy it or do you destroy it or do you just leave a wide mouth and leave it be? Yeah, I haven't had great luck destroying it and probably that's because they're mostly retrograde. I mean, I think if you go percutaneous, you could put the rollerball in and really destroy it. It's hard to completely destroy it with a fiber without feeling like you're doing some real damage <laughs> just to kind of everything surrounding. Um, so usually what I'll do is really open up the mouth as well as I can and then actually leave a stent in there through that for a couple of weeks to hopefully that it scars open. Perfect. And uh, Cesar, you nodded your I, head. Do you agree with that? I, I totally agree with Karen. I think it's very difficult to... to to coagulate the diverticulum with the laser. If I I, uh, I suppose to do this, uh, I I would prefer to do this uh, percutaneously. And uh, using, uh, I think that the laser is not the really best uh, energy. And if you 
can do this percutaneously, you can use also the bipolar uh, electrode to do this. But I think that uh, in my experience, uh, I, I did this, I think, once or twice, but normally we try to open the, the orifice, uh, putting a, a one double J or a double double J inside, uh, and after uh, waiting for uh, for, uh, for what, uh, what could happen. But uh, unfortunately, the percentage of the structure of the orifice uh, is uh, really high, even if uh, you can you put uh, this double J for one month or two months. Yeah, so I, I I guess I may be old school perhaps, but uh, I think we approach these almost always uh, percutaneously. We try to get the stones out, obviously, with a, a lithotriptor, but we end up using a nine French Bugby electrode and really just completely destroy the diverticulum. And I don't really even make it a point to try to go down into the kidney or open up that orifice. We try to actually cauterize you know, the, the, the ostium to the best of our abilities just to not leave any active mucosa there. And and our exit strategy is just leaving a nephrostomy tube, as you mentioned, Karen, leaving a nephrostomy tube in the diverticulum. And, you know, once we pull it out in an ideal world, that whole thing will just kind of collapse and, and uh, not reform. But I, I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I guess, I guess I would have one last question about diverticula. What if you can't access it from below and the diverticulum is relatively anterior? Uh, do you both or either of you feel that the lap robotic approach uh, is still a viable option or is there another uh, modality that you like to do for uh, anterior diverticula? I think robotic is still a very viable option. I mean, an anterior calcial diverticula is a hard place to get from a percutaneous approach. You can do it, but it just seems a little bit harder, a little bit riskier. You know, they're harder to get access into, unless they're big, they're harder to get access into anyway, just because you can't really get a wire down, you're working with limited sort of vectors on your wires there. So if it's anterior and it's symptomatic and it's a significant thing, I'll send it to one of my colleagues for robotic. Cesare, do you have a, a, a an opinion on that? Anterior. The indication for a paroscopic or robotic uh, surgery for the diverticulum is uh, really rare. Huh? I think that uh, you, if you treat, you have to be, have a big diverticulum. Uh, if you have a small diverticulum, I think that uh, is uh, is uh, not so easy to do this, uh, especially if uh, it's very small, the diverticulum. If uh, it's big, you can do a, a resection or the, do a, like a, a resection of the diverticulum in robotic, but is uh, I think that is uh, is uh, really rare in my uh, in my experience. Sure, I don't disagree with you. Okay, let's uh, move on to matrix stones. Um, this I think is overdiagnosed. I think a lot of people I get sent a lot of patients saying, "Hey, they have a matrix stone. Can you take care of it?" And and I think you know the true matrix stone is one of these just. Um, it's almost like that rubber cement glue you had uh, as a kid in, in elementary school, and it's just adherent to the mucosa. It is extremely difficult to remove. Uh, I guess my first question is, uh, if you know you have a matrix stone, and sometimes you can tell by CT scan, um, there are some some patterns on CT that you see about matrix stones that may give, it a, give you a hint of what you're dealing with. It's kind of this swirling or whirling kind of pattern with interspersed calcifications. Is there a role for ureteroscopy in this in this disease, uh, Cesare, or or is it totally percutaneous? I think that uh, ureteroscopy is fundamental for uh, for the diagnosis and also to to try to evaluate because sometimes it's not so easy 
to understand, especially if you have a patient the smoke, smokers, and so you have some uh, problem in the diagnostic, in the in the in the diagnosis, and you can suppose to have, uh, for example, a, a, a cancer in the in the maxistone. Uh, I think that is fundamental to take a look with uh, flexible ureteroscopy. I, uh, I in the last in the last ten years. Uh, I realized that the flexible ureteroscopy is fundamental to make the right diagnosis in stone, in cancer, but is fundamental to see exactly what we are doing in the bladder. We can do this in the in the kidney. At the end, for the treatment, I think that this kind of stone is to be has to be removed percutaneously uh, because. Uh, from uh, from uh, from the also from a big urethral sheet is not so easy to catch this stone because you don't you don't have the possibility to maintain the the this uh, this metric stone in the basket. So I think that uh, it's fundamental to to do a, a diagnosis, but in the treatment, uh, I think that the percutaneous uh, surgery is uh, is uh, mandatory. Karen, your thoughts on uh, ureteroscopy for a known matrix stone? No, I agree. I mean, it's so frustrating because you get up there and you you feel like there's something in your basket, and by the time you get your basket out, there's actually nothing in it. Um, I think I think this is going to change with new aspiration techniques and suction devices. I've had a little bit of success with the CVAC Calixo device, getting some some of that suction material out. I think ultimately it still is a percutaneous procedure, but I hope in the future as our aspiration, you know, as we're getting these sheets that go up to the kidney and aspirate, that's kind of the ideal stone for it because you should be able to aspirate all that out without having to perk the kidney. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a very uh, tough stone. I, I've I've never had any success with the, the current uh, devices that we have uh, retrograde. And so I, I, we, we really reserve these for percutaneous. And uh, I think you... You know, we always have to try to like scrape the the matrix off of the mucosa. I think you do end up having a little bit more trauma uh, to these kidneys, unfortunately. Um, but I do believe that the fundamental preventative aspect is you know total removal. I, I think if you leave some of the stone behind, you're going to end up with anitis and for you know and propagation of more stone. So, kind of and a difficult that, situation. We have also to take into account that the risk also of infection and uh, sepsis in this kind of stone. Is really very high. So we have, if we are doing this uh, only regularly, we have to take care to the pressure inside because uh, the risk of of sepsis is very very high. So is is the reason also that uh, I normally prefer to do percutaneous this this, uh, this one. Okay, perfect. Let's um let's go on to horseshoe kidney. I, I think we could probably spend you know hours talking about horseshoe kidney and, and some of the approaches to horseshoe kidney. I think. If we can narrow our discussion maybe to like a 15 millimeter stone, something something that's not just an obvious percutaneous approach, uh, you know, not a four centimeter, five centimeter stone, but also not a, a four millimeter, six millimeter UPJ obstructing stone or something. Let's kind of make it so you really have an option of um, going from above and below a 15 to 18 millimeter uh, stone that might be in the medial pole or, or medial aspect of the horseshoe kidney. Uh, as we know, the, the orientation of this kidney is, is quite different than a normal kidney. Karen, uh, you have a 15, 18 millimeter symptomatic stone in a horseshoe. What uh, What's your preference uh, from above or below? I tend to do percutaneous and I tend to do a lot of mini perks on these patients. I mean, it's easier to get access on them, I think, when they're prone. So you just, you know, it's a small incision. It's pretty effective. 
It's not, it doesn't take a lot of time. Although someone told me the other day that putting them prone actually makes your ureteroscopy easier in the horseshoe kidneys. So I think that I'm gonna try that on my next one of this size. Sometimes it just makes it a little bit easier with that angle and the stone just sort of drops out more. So that's something to try too. Cesare, what's your approach to most horseshoe pathology? I think that uh, this is the, this is a stone in which uh, we have uh, we don't we don't know if it's possible to do retrograde if uh, we can't see the anatomy, and uh, and also the uh, the hardness of the stone. So I think that uh, in uh, in my uh, daily practice, I am doing always flexible ureteroscopy. Sometimes it's uh, difficult to enter into the pelvis, but sometimes it's very easy to do this. And also with uh, the new the new uh, digital um, disposable ureteroscope, we can also do a, a very very good uh, deflection of our our uh, instrument and also using the new laser, the TFL, but also the the Olmium with uh, the different pulse modulation, we can treat uh, retrograde. Uh, normally, as uh, I uh, told uh, uh, before about uh, the caliceal diverticulum, I'm putting uh, this patient uh, in the in the Galdaco modified uh, Valdivia supine position, and uh, I am able to do in the same uh, in the same time to do also the uh, the percutaneous approach. It's very important uh, in this uh, kind of kidney to evaluate very well the uh, CT scan because uh, normally there is one side in which it's very easy to do percutaneously. And on the other side, especially if you have a torsion of the of the kidney, sometimes you don't have any window for the percutaneous approach. So it's, it's very important also, also to, to evaluate this, also to define the right approach, avoiding any puncture of the colon or the bowel and, and so and so. So I think that at the end with a CT scan, flexible ureteroscopy, we can decide the the end and do the, the the treatment in one single surgery for uh, for uh, the best result for the patient. I think that you know in this era of dusting stones, I mean this this basically you know a universal uh, practice. I think doing dusting from below in a horseshoe kidney makes me concerned about the the stone clearance. You know the the, the fragment clearance. You know once you dust yeah. the they're all just going to basically roll medially and kind of inferiorly. They're almost inferior to the the UPJ, and I worry about drainage. Have you seen a problem with the you know the drainage of the 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 dust that you leave behind? Yes, sure. This is this is a, a, the problem. Is a, a, this is the reason that is very important to evaluate the burden of the stone. If uh, we are considering uh, one centimeter stone, one centimeter and a half, we can also break the stone in uh, 10, 20 big pieces and uh, trying to remove with a basket. And uh, in, in the horseshoe kidney, sometimes you have a UP junction obstruction, but sometimes the reason of the stone formation is only because we have this uh, attach of the, of the ureter uh, to hide. So is the reason that the kidney is always full of urine. So is the reason. So I think that depends. If uh, if you have a, a very small stone, you can also risk to treat uh, retrograde and evaluate also in the in the, the future. But uh, I I agree with you. If you have a stone more than two centimeter, in my in my. Uh, my opinion is the percutaneous approach. All right, perfect. Let's move on to uh, spinal abnormalities. I'm not sure we have a lot of 
uh, great clinical pearls for this, but I, I, I beg you to come up with some kind of, you know, some thoughts for our audience. Things like ankylosing spondylitis, scoliosis, spina bifida. Uh, Cesare, it sounds like you do a lot of supine. Have you found supine to be different, better, worse in this patient population? Uh, is is bowel, obs- you know, obscuration, is, is the bowel in the way of your uh, supine tracks a, a problem in this patient population, or you've not necessarily found that? But I think that this kind of patient uh, you can define supine or prone, <laughs> because uh, we are we are uh, we are uh, working uh, in the Cotolengo Hospital, and I don't know if you know the history. In Cotolengo is uh, Piccola Casa of Divina Providenza. This was made by Giuseppe Cotolengo. Is the place where they put uh, all the child with uh, these uh, abnormalities. So we have uh, experience in this. Uh, and wow. what is, is uh, very important uh, is uh, to evaluate with a CT scan. And after uh, this, uh, we have to decide the best position. But normally, it's not a supine or prone. It's the position for this patient. It's a particular position, so you have to, to, uh, to turn the patient uh, in order to be able to, to, uh, to approach the, and uh, to do the, the, the percutaneous approach. But normally also in this kind of patient is fundamental to do the retrograde uh, way. So I think that we can't, uh, you can define supine or a prone, but uh, we have to, to, to find the right position for, for uh, the single patient. So you, you have a large population there. Do you, if someone presents with stone, do you perform CT scans in both the supine and prone positions? Uh, no, normally we we are doing. Uh, we we made this uh, twenty years ago for uh, for a uh, twenty five patient uh, in order to evaluate also the the different uh, uh, relationship between the kidney and the and the surrounding organs. And uh, normally in the in the normal patient they change uh, something, especially in the slim patient. If you do this. Uh, in supine, the CT in supine or in prone. In this kind of patient, normally everything is blocked inside because because of the, the space that you have sure. is very very small. So sure. normally we we are doing one one single CT scan normally in supine or in uh, in the position that the patient can uh, maintain during the CT scan. Karen, do you do you have a, a preference, kind of a little off the topic, but certainly very relevant? Uh, do you have a preference of getting your CT scans prone or supine? And does this patient population have any impact on whether you do it that way or not? So in the general population without the spinal abnormalities, if I remember, I actually will have them do a prone CT, um, especially if it's a large stone burden. I do probably 50-50 supine and prone. So if it's a person where I'm kind of making that decision or I really want to get upper pole and I want to see where that upper pole is in relation to the pleura, if I remember and they need a, another preoperative CT scan for some reason, I'll get them prone. Um, in this particular patient population, Often, they, it's not like they have a choice of how they can be positioned, right? That's sort of, it's hard to position them either way. So you don't, you can kind of just do what you have to do. I have a low threshold for getting help from IR in these situations who can get access using CT scan. I think often that's safer. I do a lot of ultrasound so I can see if stuff is in the way. But, you know, with these big abnormalities and you can't position them the way you want, I, I have a low threshold to get my IR colleagues to help. No, excellent, excellent point. Very good. Well, uh, in our remaining time, last topic, probably be a short one. Uh, we don't see it that often, but stones in ectopic kidneys. I guess I'd 
mainly be talking about the pelvic kidney. We've already talked about horseshoe. I don't know how many thoracic kidneys we've perked in our lives, but probably very few. I've seen probably uh, 10 pelvic kidneys who've required treatment. And I just wanted your thoughts on um, uh, ureteroscopy, PCNL, lap, robot, open. What, what's your preferred technique, Karen, on, on tackling stones in pelvic kidneys? So I've had a couple of these um, retrograde. I will certainly try. Sometimes it's almost like a transplant kidney where it's hard. The sheath falls out. It's just hard to get that angle. <laughs> Ultimately, for most of them, there's no perk access, right? So you're either going through bowel or going through bone, et cetera. You just can't get to it. So if it's truly a large stone burden that needs to be treated, it has to be laparoboic. Say sorry. And the first approach is uh, is for sure the ureteroscopy. And uh, I think that one uh, one good op option in uh, in this case is also the the percutaneous approach uh, with the use of uh, laparoscopy. So we can we can approach laparoscopically, and we move uh, out the, the the bowel and we do the puncture of the kidney under vision. And is a, is a very very good solution because sometimes, especially in multiple stones, uh, the the only laparoscopic or robotic approach is very very difficult uh, in order to remove all uh, the different stones. All right. Well, I, I guess uh, this concludes our podcast on uh, kind of the the other stones that we see in, in uh, complex situations uh, on behalf of the Endourological Society, uh, Wolf uh, Medical, and uh, Marianne Liebert uh, Publishers. We thank you both for your expertise and appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.